If you would take a Bible that you have or one that's in the pew in front of you and open it up to the book of Nehemiah. And we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 5. If you're following along in those uh, Bibles in front of you, you'll find this on page number 401. Uh, if you're visiting with us, uh, we one thing about us that you might be interested to know is that we want to make sure that we're getting all that we can get from God's Word that He's given us. Which means it's kind of our habit to take a book of the Bible and go through it consecutively. Not all the time, but usually. So that everything that's in there can be mined and seen and that we don't skip over anything to our own demise and loss. So that's what we've been doing with the book of Nehemiah. And if you're visiting, you may be jumping in with us to the middle. But I trust and pray that this time will be of benefit to us all. So we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 5, returning to our study through this book. This is a story about the nation of Israel. After they returned to Jerusalem from exile by permission of the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, who reigned over a vast empire at the time. It's a story about rebuilding. It's a story about leadership. It's a story about a people returning to God. Last week we saw Israel begin rebuilding the broken walls of the city of Jerusalem. Only to quickly experience opposition from enemies, surrounding enemies. We saw God protect them. The work was slowed, yes, but the people remained safe. Now we're going to move into Nehemiah 5. And threats appear not outside the walls, but inside them. Not in the form of oncoming attack, but an issue between countrymen, between the Jews themselves engaged in reconstruction. This issue is going to test whether or not Israel will own their identity as God's people or return to being just like every other nation. The main idea of my sermon this morning is, is this. And I hope that we'll be able to see that this is God's message for us from this passage. It's this. When sin threatens, God's people address their sin and generously love each other. When sin threatens, God's people address their sin And generously love each other. Now there are lessons here for us. Even in that main idea. There is both a reality for us to consider. That is the reality that sin will threaten us. And there is a response. To make in light of that reality. To address our sin. And generously love each other. So the sermon will kind of fold out. Into those two parts. When sin threatens us. Our reality And the response we make, address our sin and generously love each other. So let's begin with that first part. The reality that we face when sin threatens God's people. Let's read about that in Nehemiah chapter 5 verse 1 through 5. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, 
We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. Israel was an agrarian society, and they're in the midst of the devastation to a society like that that comes with famine. Nehemiah is the governor in the city of Jerusalem and so naturally will receive the kind of appeals and complaints that come as part of his civic duty that we, that we see here. Under the strain of famine, financial problems surface. Some people can't feed their families, having no money for food. Others begin mortgaging their property to pay for the next meal. And most desperate seem the people who, having sold all they had or mortgaged it off, begin influencing their children to sell themselves as slaves to neighboring nations. It is a dire and desperate situation in Israel. One that we might find difficult to relate to. Last year, we celebrated the 100th anniversary of this church. I wonder how Warnell Road Baptist Church navigated the Great Depression nearly 90 years ago. When calamity struck and deep needs surfaced, how do you suppose it affected the community there? Or our brothers and sisters in Northern Africa undergoing famine right now, how do you suppose those strains and needs are coming to bear on their life together as God's people. Well, in his investigation, Nehemiah discovers a root problem. And you get a glimpse of it in verse 5. Some Jews are not facing the same desperate plight. Nehemiah will find that there are certain Jewish countrymen benefiting from their neighbor's calamity. So let's read verse 6 through 8. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. So apparently as poor Jewish fathers bend under the hardship of famine, their neighbors lend them money but charge interest. As families are forced to sell their land and their livelihood, the rich are buying it up. And as some Jews seek to restore families by buying back those sold into slavery, there are others who keep on selling off as slaves those countrymen who owe them debts. Jerusalem is a house divided. And as the physical walls go up, their community is on the verge of crumbling. Now, the rest of this chapter shows and covers how Nehemiah will lead the people through this. But before we look at that, I want to give us some background. In our world of loans and mortgages, some of this doesn't seem that odd. 
Our financial institutions regularly are foreclosing on people's homes. And you don't have to drive far to see people on the side of the road asking for food. And while none of this and none of us are selling ourselves into indentured servitude, there are many, many people in third world countries right now, especially effectively selling themselves into companies to companies in foreign countries in order to provide for their impoverished families back home. So it's nearer to us than we might first think. But this might just read to us as a story about Israel in especially tough economic times. But what is different about Israel is their identity as God's people. And that will factor heavily into how Nehemiah leads them. God has chosen Israel to be his people, a distinct people, a holy nation set apart from all the other nations. They had special laws from God about how to live together in such a way that demonstrated that they served the one true and living God. And God, in various parts of his law, addressed what they should do should this very situation arise. Leviticus 25, if you're curious to read more about this, this part of his law. And then the following chapter is one of the best places to see what God had planned for his people when this happened. But to summarize, we find there the poor should not be taken advantage of. Charging interest... Of those in economic hardship was against God's law. And that God wanted people to have ways to retain their property. Even if they needed to loan it away for a period of time. So this issue in Jerusalem is more than just a civic problem. Or an economic issue of their day. This is a spiritual problem. This is a sin problem. This is the biggest threat to this community. Bigger than any outside opponent. Will Israel be the distinct community of God as they navigate this? Will they uphold God's laws? Or will they settle back into living just like every other nation with their oppression, slavery, division, and exploitation? It's a legitimate question because Israel had long ago forgot her distinctiveness. We heard about that a couple weeks ago when Jeff brought us the message from 1 Samuel. When Israel discarded God as their king years before this ever happened and demanded that they would get a king like the other nations. So when they were finally led into exile, they were led there because Israel had become just like any one of their neighboring countries and they were nothing like God. So now in God's mercy, it is as if they're getting a redo. They've been back in Jerusalem long enough to start reenacting their previous ways of doing this. Will they turn? Will they be God's people and deal with this in God's way? If not, it doesn't matter how wide or how high they will build that wall. They will not last. Now, as the church and as it relates to us, it is because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross that we are now God's distinct people in this world. 1 Peter 2 verse 9 through 12 explains this and tells us that because of our identity as God's people, we are to be distinct in this world. 
Listen to what it says there, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evil doers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is our identity. And there is no greater threat to that identity than our own sin. God promises to protect his church from hell's advances. But he does not recognize any church as such that would call themselves his people but won't live like it. We know how destructive sin can be in a church. How moral failure by pastors can bring lasting discouragement to a whole church. How putting our preferences before God's principles can lead to church splits. How people with more money but no fruit of the Spirit can be given power only to bring the church crashing down. We've heard those stories or we've witnessed them. I remember in college, I went to a, an old college in a historic city, Charleston, South Carolina. And as such, there's a lot of history there. Uh, you can go do tours of the homes and the Civil War sites. And I remember... Uh, a construction company building a parking garage down on the peninsula. And they, as they were digging, came across some old Civil War ordinance, buried bombs. And uh, thankfully, as soon as they discovered it, all work stopped. They had to rectify that before they kept digging. Thankfully, they didn't cover it up in the name of, of getting on with things efficiently. We as a church must treat sin like that. Sin among us, we we must treat it like that bomb. We must be willing, like Nehemiah, as he will do, to put on hold progress on this mission or that ministry, if necessary, in order to dig out the more foundational issue of present sin. So having seen the potential reality in Nehemiah 5 for us when sin threatens us, let's think secondly about what should be our response. This is kind of the second big part of the message for us. Here's what our response should be. When sin threatens, God's people address their sin and generously love each other. God's people address their sin and generously love each other. Let's look at Nehemiah 5, verse 6 through 13, to see how the people here address their sin. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you're exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? 
Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let's abandon, abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. If you didn't know how this was going to unfold, you might not have been surprised if Nehemiah, a man in power, decided to side with the rich and powerful and against the poor and powerless. That is, after all, the way things often go. When the motive in our heart is to advance, we will often treat others as objects that either help us or hinder us in getting what we want. But Nehemiah has a higher and a greater concern, one that holds his own personal ambitions and sins in check. Do you see it there in verse 9? So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? To prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies. So it's not about leveraging capital or capitalizing on an opportunity for financial growth, Nehemiah says. God says that this is a matter of right and wrong, of good and bad. That the very thing these people are doing is the very thing God says, don't do. And the impact? People are hurt and God is mocked. What taunts Nehemiah anticipated coming from the other nations, we don't know. It's not spelled out. But we could imagine some God they serve, they don't even take care of their poor. Their work on the wall is just going to be a flash in the pan. These people won't last. All they do is fight with each other. Some God they serve. If following God means means hating your neighbor, I don't want any part in that. So Nehemiah's chief concern is holding God above their sin, not making it seem to others that God is party to their sin. God help us as a church to have that same concern. We can put a finer point on this sin of Israel, I think, and the sin that can threaten us. It's selfish sin, isn't it? It's the kind of thing that leads us to ignore other people's needs and prioritize our own. It's tightening our grip on our own resources, though we know other people could use our help. It's the kind of self-regard that turns us into consumers, looking to how this church can or this person can serve me, not how I can provide for them. If we harbor that selfish sin here, we will be unable to love God and love each other. If we harbor selfish sin here, we will be unable to love God and love each other. Selfishness is an acid that eats marriages and ministries, charity, and churches. So if we find it, how do we address it? We, like Nehemiah and Israel did, we don't ignore it. 
We don't ignore sin when it rises. See how Nehemiah listened, he saw, and he sided with God. We hold up God's word as our guide to what is sin. Even in the face of powerful opposition. We follow God's word in confronting sin. His word is the standard, not the opinions that we may hold or the culture around us may hold strongly. We come to each other and we exhort, we entreat, we even warn if necessary to do anything it might be to help our brother or sister avoid falling into sin. You see how how drastic Nehemiah gets by giving this visible illustration for the people there who would have kept all their closest possessions inside their cloak. He says, may God who has called you his treasured possession." If you do not obey him in his word, may it be as if he shakes you out and never holds you close again. Nehemiah goes so far as to warn them that should they disobey, they will no longer have a future with God. So we exhort and we warn and we entreat. This is how we address sin. But then we go on and we see the people respond rightly. And that's how we address sin too, isn't it? When confronted with our own sin, we repent of it. We, we listen to the exhortation given in love by a brother or sister and we acknowledge it. We do not put up our defenses and say, there's no way. There's no way I could be guilty of what you're saying. Of course there's a way. We're born into sin. We have a nature as sinners. We give ourselves over to selfishness. Of course we do that. Of course we know that. I hope that if you think that sounds surprising and you're here today, I hope you walk out of here and and are happy to find a group of people who are not surprised by what you're like. Because we're like that. This is why we need to have sin addressed. We need to have it apparent to us what we've done, even when we don't see it. And when confronted with our sin, we, we recognize, yes, I've done what's wrong in God's eyes, and I want to be done with it. I want to make it right. Israel is so commendable in this. Yeah, it, it took a little bit. But when confronted, they say, we'll make it right. What we've done is wrong. And once repenting of sin we've been confronted with and following God's word in in confronting sin, holding up God's word as his guide and not ignoring sin, we then, having followed his way of dealing with sin, we can then trust this is God's way of dealing with it. And he's going to work through it. I love the way the thing resolves. (laughs) There's this animosity and this fighting and this hurt. But do you notice that it's all the people together at the end of this saying, praise God and amen. Let's live for him together. The animosity has been, has been destroyed. It's been taken out, sucked out of the picture. Because they were willing to follow God in how they address sin. That's what God wants for us. God has in store when we take sin head on like he would have us do and And we confront it and we repent of it. God will restore people who repent. And he will preserve churches that deal with sin. This is the response that Jesus Christ calls for from every one of us through the gospel. You and I, made to love God, have not loved him. Made to worship him and to show his glory, have not done that. 
We've followed our own way, and because of that, we've defied the living God, and we deserve the punishment that comes with that, death. And yet God in his mercy has not treated us as our sins deserve. He sent Christ to be the sacrifice for us, to die on a cross, to endure the wrath of God for, against us on himself. Jesus gave his life for you so that you might have forgiveness from your sin against him. And we know it was true. We know that he was the son of God come to do that for us because he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave and accomplished victory over sin and death. And the response that the gospel calls from each of us is to acknowledge that you are the sinner that Christ needed to die for. That I'm the one who deserved death. And that Christ had to give his perfect life for that payment. And to look to Jesus who gave that for us and to believe that it was for you. To forgive you and to turn you away from your life of sin and turn you to a life that follows God. Jesus Christ from the cross and from his resurrected position in heaven calls for you to respond to what he's done by repenting of your sin and trusting in Christ. With God's help, let it be our aim as Jesus has redeemed people to deal with our sin like Nehemiah led Israel to do. After all, it wasn't just Nehemiah a leader. It was Jesus, our leader, who gives us the same instruction in Matthew 18. Go to our brother and sister individually if they've sinned against us, like Nehemiah did with the officials. Then if they don't listen, take other witnesses, like the people who brought the complaints to Nehemiah. Then if your brother remains committed to their sin, bring it to the church, as Nehemiah brings it to the assembly. If they don't listen even to the church, then they're demonstrating that they're not one of God's people and should no longer be called a member of his body. The aim of all of this, I hope we can see, is love. It's love. Love for God who's holy and good and true. Love for his word that leads us in that way. Love for others who we don't want to see captured by their sin and led astray. I wonder if you're here and you're not a member of a church, but you'd really like to belong to a group that loves you. Well, I welcome you to come tonight to our membership classes and find out 5 o'clock how you might be a part of this group. But whether or not you join us, know that in order to find that kind of love, you'll need to find two things you might not have considered. You'll need to find people who love God enough to obey Him even when it's hard. And you'll need to let them love you By holding you to account when you fall into sin, if you should. A church cannot truly love you if they don't love God. And you cannot be truly loved if your sin is off limits. When God's people grow together in loving God more than their sin and loving each other by addressing sin, God gets praise. Because the end product is a group of people who fear God and prefer one another. And in that are united and at peace, just like Israel by the end of this. All agree, the sinners against, the the sinned against and the sinner together praising God. And together under God good's rule. And there is nowhere but the church, God's people, where the nations can witness that.
So as God's people, we address our sin. And we generously love each other. This is kind of like the other side of the coin. If we are working against being selfishly sinful, we're seeking instead to be generously loving. Since Jesus told us to love one another and not sin against each other, our expectation and our prayer is that we will be a church that is doing a lot more loving than sinning. This is obvious in the way the next section relates to the one we just considered. Nehemiah's example presents a better way than selfish sin, a way of serving others. So look at chapter 5, verse 14 to 19. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I didn't do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I didn't demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people." Remember for my good, O my God, all that I've done for this people. Nehemiah is is an example of putting others first, of generous love. He was evidently a rich man. Uh, But that didn't become a platform for getting richer at the expense of others. He used his riches to help those who needed it. In a culture of exploitation, Nehemiah chose to pass up on his perks. In a land of famine, Nehemiah welcomed people to come to eat at his table, and he picked up the tab. When other rulers would have used their power to only command, Nehemiah used his position to help the people build. Can you imagine the effect? Nehemiah's generosity as the, as the top governor in the land, what effect his generosity had on the people he was leading? What do we mean by generosity? My kids and I often read a book. Uh, there's a series of books by Tommy DePaulo called Streganona and lots of different things. I don't know if you know these books, but it's about an Italian witch, basically, who's really good and, and generous, so seemingly. And so most stories end with her filling up her magic pasta pot and feeding everybody. And it's just like a really feel-good story, teaches you about hospitality But I actually think that Streganona and her magic incantation that produces something out of nothing is not quite what we mean by generosity. It's close. But I think Nehemiah's generosity is different. This is what I think we can define generosity as. Generosity is joyfully giving for the good of others at your own expense. Joyfully giving for the good of others at your own expense. And in my experience, faithful generosity makes for very fruitful discipleship. Meaning, 
Your generosity can teach people so much about following Jesus. I remember, just to give you a few examples of how it so infected me, affected me. I remember being a young professional starting out on Capitol Hill making little money and blown away by a mentor who took me and discipled me and we had many meals together and he never let me pay for meals. That struck me. It's still in my mind. I remember people who supported us when we moved overseas to Dubai who I knew didn't have much, but they were giving. It stuck with me. I remember a church in Austin, Texas, praying for me in the midst of a very hard season and then sending us money to take a family vacation that we could have never afforded. That just just taught me what God's generous love looks like. You see, God loves when, when this happens in and among his people. And the goal in encouraging you to generosity this morning from God's word is not so that we receive some sort of economic parity among us. It's not my goal. I don't think that's God's goal. Nehemiah had a huge house and other people didn't. And Nehemiah is commended for using his huge house for the good of other people. The Bible supports ideas of personal property and doesn't think poor and rich are moral categories. The goal is love. Where a person from the outside could come in and observe these people, rather rich or poor, truly care about each other. And through our interactions, they see it's because we know that God truly cares about us. Our prayer is that we would be faithful in our generosity and God would bring fruitful discipleship from that. And that that would be our culture. A culture of generosity. So in the rest of our time, I'd like to give us three encouragements to that end. Three encouragements, three truths to motivate us to pursue this kind of generosity. The first is this. God's love makes us want to be generous. God's love makes us want to be generous. That prayer of Nehemiah is in verse 19. Maybe you noticed it. And then the statement in verse 15. That is is there to demonstrate just how much Nehemiah cared about what God thought of how he lived. He's not trying to score points with God. He's expressing that he did all these things for people because he knew they were God's people. And God was aware Because of Nehemiah's deep reverence, his fear of God, what's most important to Nehemiah is that God looks on what he did as good, even if nobody else notices it. The kind of generous love that gives at our expense flows out of a heart that knows that God has been generous to us. So if you would, turn to 2 Corinthians 8. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul commends the Macedonian Christians who, though very poor, sent financial gifts to help the church in Jerusalem in a time of famine. Paul encourages the Corinthians, who he's writing to here, to follow the Macedonian Christians' example, reminding them that what Christ did for them. Look at 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you might, by his poverty, might become rich. Later, Paul will tell the Ephesian church in Ephesians 5, 1, similar thing. Be constant in your love for each other as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. The sacrificial gift of Christ on the cross produces sacrificial giving in his people. That is the work of the spirit that's been given to us and put in our heart. God loves for us to have, by his work and his word, to have created in us a desire to love each other. That is what he does and that is what he's after. God's love makes us want to be generous. May that be an encouragement to us in our generosity. Second encouragement. God loves when we are generous. God's love makes us generous and God loves when we are generous. I think Nehemiah's prayer in verse 19 reflected that Nehemiah not only cared about what God thought, but that Nehemiah understood what God loves, what God is pleased with. So staying in 2 Corinthians for just a moment, go over to chapter 9. Paul continued to write about this, this opportunity to give to those in need. And in 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7, he says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, For God loves a cheerful giver. God loves when we're generous because it shows how deeply people can truly know him. When we give even to our own hurt, we demonstrate that people like us who are in relationship with a God like him, we are not afraid of losing because we've already gained Christ. God loves for us to know that kind of security in him. And he loves then to respond to our need to be our givers. So let me show you one last thing. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Who is it that gives that? God. God loves when we're generous because it testifies to who he is. He is indeed a loving and caring God who is taking care of us and doing it generously. So God loves when we're generous because of what he did for us and why he did it. When we give for the sake of others, when we invite people in to share what we have, we give a picture of what Christ has done for us and why. How he gave his life in order to save us. And through his death, he invites all of us to come and enjoy fellowship with him. To come to his table and feast now and forever. When we're When we're generous, we show that. Jesus came down from heaven to give himself for us. Would we entertain going down in our net worth because we knew God would love that? Jesus, for our sakes, became poor in order to make us rich. Wouldn't he love to see us choosing to spend less on ourselves every month in order to be generous towards others like he does? Jesus gave his entire human life to serving God in us. Think about how much he would love it if we followed his example and gave a little less time to our favorite personal hobby this week and gave our time to visiting with somebody who could use a visit. God loves when we're generous. What a wonderful motivation for generosity. 
last encouragement that I hope helps us pursue a culture of generous love. It's this. God loves others through our generous love to others. God loves others through our generous love to others. Look at how God, back in Nehemiah 5, uses Nehemiah's generosity to help those in hardship and pain. Not only his own countrymen, but people who gather around his table, did you notice, from all other nations. He gives up what he was entitled to, the food allowance, which lessens the burden on the people to give. And he gives his food, which helps people who don't have food. So if everyone had adopted Nehemiah's approach from the beginning, the previous sin situation and the pain it caused could have been avoided. Generosity is the antidote to selfishness creeping into our church. Generosity was God's solution for Israel's hardship. Instead of taking, the officials could have given, and the people in hunger would have been fed, and no one would have needed to fear destitution. Generosity is God's means for meeting his people's needs so often in the church. Generosity is God's means for meeting his people's needs so often in the church. But here in Kansas City, government is that, isn't it? Our society's expectation is that people's needs will be met by Social programs and legislation. And, and often that is used by God in his common grace to help people. But here in the church, we are different. We are distinct people. So let's start by asking, how can my generosity meet another person's need here? Here, in this household of faith, Galatians 6.10. If God has blessed you with money... Be on the lookout for people in this church who could benefit from an occasional grocery gift card. Or if you have a skill, how could you give that to help someone who could benefit from it but not be able to afford it? If you have a big house with empty bedrooms, maybe consider hosting a college student so that they wouldn't have to pay for college housing. Or a big table and a lot of food in the fridge. Consider thinking about once, twice a week having someone over who might not be able to afford the food that you are able to enjoy. It's an opportunity. It's something God loves. This is not a motivation to guilt. I'm trying to, to see, for us to see in God's word, this is something God made us for. It's something that shows off who he is. So I'm trying to give us ideas about how we can take that run with it in our community. As a parent with kids and a limited budget, I've found how generous many of you are babysitting our kids so we can take a date night. And I so greatly appreciate it. Others have given your help around this church to help with projects. And the church appreciates it. And generosity extends beyond finances. I want, I want you to hear me say that. You may not be a middle to high income person. But you might have information or resources or connections. You, you might be a person who connects one person who wants to be generous with another person who needs generosity. That could be your partnership in that. I've been thinking a lot this week about loneliness and how it affects people. And, and to my shame, I think, I've, I think I've neglected that or it just hasn't been in my mind. But 
I think it's because so many of you have shared with me that, that you regularly experience that. I think it's also because my family's out of town and I've been missing them. My home is empty. It's also because I've been getting to know people at a local senior living center, many of whom never get visitors. Maybe that's sensitized me to that. Loneliness is so hard. And generous love is God's means for meeting people's needs and loneliness. So if you have time, consider using it to give yourself to lonely people. And if you're lonely, consider giving yourself to provide relationship to others who struggle with the same. If you're single, if you're widowed or retired and you feel lonely, you may have extra that others don't have. Meaning time to give to others, to go where they are, to flex around their schedules that seem more busy. And in that, you may find that in your flexibility and availability to others, the Lord meets your need for relationship too. Married people with kids, you have extra that others don't have. You have a home with parents and kids. You have a family, a family that you can open up to those without family. Who either have lost all their family or are living away from family. Having been a single guy once and not living near family. I can't tell you just how much God loved me through families in a church that took me in. Maybe you have the ability to adopt. Maybe you could foster a child. That's another way we can be generous. And I just, I just want to thank God for the ways we're getting to do this as a church together. When you as a church, just one, one granular way this is happening in our life right now. When you as a church prioritize in our budget to give me a pastor an expense account, we are partnering, partnering together in generous ministry. So that I can go to lunch with someone and use the time you've given me to give to them. And we can talk and we can seek, seek out God's word together and we can pray we demonstrate generosity. That is a partnership we have together. Or as we give to missions, we are giving to meet the spiritual needs of people across the world, bringing food to the hungry, the bread of Christ to those who hunger and have not yet found his satisfaction. That's a ministry that comes through generous giving. And how many more we could list? Man, what a God-glorifying response generosity is to selfish sin. When we face threats within our church to prefer ourselves over each other, may God help us address our sin and be generous in our love to each other. And we have the opportunity to do that now as we come to the table. Here is where we come regularly, reminded of the sin that used to divide us that Christ died to forgive. Through his sacrifice, Christ gathers us around his body broken and bloodshed and makes us one. How generous his love for us. With this kind of love, could we ever be too generous in our love for each other? Let's pray. Lord, help us to love what you love and be motivated by your love for us. That we would be generous people as you are a generous God. Remind us even of that and teach and train us and lead us in appreciating you all the more for your generosity, even as we come to the table now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.